0: I'd like you to come shopping with me today, and of course, it's still COVID times, so let's do this virtually. Think about going to your favourite grocery store. Farmers markets are a little different, so let's think right now about grocery stores. Think about the produce section and how practically every time we go, the shelves are overflowing with beautiful, perfectly uniform offerings, fruits and vegetables apples so many varieties it's rare to find one with a mark or a bruise and if we do there are always dozens and dozens more of each variety so let's pick those ones look at those tomatoes bright and round and so many of them i only really need a couple but these look so good i think i'll take six and i should probably pick up some milk while we're here you do what I do, look skeptically at the milk cartons or bottles that are right at the front of the shelves and peek behind them to see if there's one with a better best before date on it? Hey, there is. I'm going to take that one. Do you do that too? Somehow I think I'm not the only one. But why is there such abundance in the grocery stores? And isn't it odd that all the produce looks so unblemished and that all the dairy is so incredibly fresh? Isn't there some other stuff out there somewhere? Maybe some bruised red peppers or some milk that's getting closer to its best before date? The answer is yes, of course there is. There's a lot of it in fact, and too much of it, far, far too much of it is headed directly for the trash. Let's talk about that. talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chefdemoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome to the Chefdemoni Podcast, and thank you for being here. If you're new to the show, Chefdemoni is a podcast about food. I work as a lawyer these days, but I love food and restaurants and talking to people who also love food and restaurants. A few years ago, I took a break from the office world, and I worked professionally as a cook for a while. I absolutely loved it, and Cheftimony is my way of staying in touch with that world, with the culinary world, now that I'm back to being a lawyer full-time. There you go. That's the quick story behind the show, and today's episode features a great talk that is important for a few reasons. We're going to have a look at some problems in the world of food, problems in the restaurant industry, problems with greenwashing, which is trying to appear more environmentally friendly than you really are, and we're going to look at the very, very large problem of food waste. Helping me do that better than I possibly could on my own is Chef Dave Heidi of Madison, Wisconsin. As you'll hear, Chef Dave loves cooking and creating beautiful food for people, but more than that, he is a deep thinker and an action taker on the problems of food insecurity and food waste. We waste so much food and we have so many people dealing with food insecurity that there has just got to be some way to reduce food waste and to feed more people. Well, Chef Dave doesn't just think about that and he doesn't just talk about it. Dave is taking concrete action, and he is creating some huge changes. You're going to hear the story today of Little John's. It's a nonprofit, pay pay-what-you-can restaurant that is focused on access to food, on sustainability, and on job skills training for veterans. One wonderful supporter of Little John's is an eight-year-old in Wisconsin named Morgan, who learned that because of COVID, kids who used to get meals in school were going hungry, and she wanted to help. So, Morgan set up a virtual lemonade stand to raise money for Little John's, and so far she has raised more than $50,000. Really incredible. Her work is so impressive that Morgan was chosen to appear virtually at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. I'll put some links in the show notes about Morgan's great story. But before we come to the story of Little John's today, Chef Dave is going to tell us about how he came to cooking, and his story may sound familiar to a lot of us who looked at many different career options. You'll hear about Dave's experiences cooking in California and how that's so different from cooking in the Midwest, as are the housing prices. And we also dive into changes that need to happen in the industry. Chef has some great thoughts on consumers needing to buy from the places that they want to support and on why we as consumers don't always make buying decisions the way we think we do. Dave has also got some fun thought experiments for all of us to demonstrate what greenwashing really is and how it can be a problem that slips past us if we're not careful about choosing where to eat. And then we get into the problem of food waste and how Little John's is tackling that very serious issue. But there is yet more. Toward the end of the show today, Chef Dave is bringing you a mini cooking lesson, and I think it's one that is going to benefit a lot of people.
1: So that's a great, a great question. One of the things that I always believe in is not teaching people recipes, but teaching them techniques, Um, because with a technique you can, I mean, anyone can Google a recipe, right? I mean, I even Google recipes, right? Everyone does it. And so, um, but one of the things that is my, my favorite way to teach people how to do is a, just how to sear a piece of protein. So whether it's scallops or steak or chicken breast or whatever, I'm just going to tell you the best way to sear a protein.
0: It's great advice from chef and you won't want to miss it. Plus, we get into the topic of pan selection and why there isn't really one right pan for every chef or cook. There's a lot to get to today, and it's a really fun talk. Chef Dave has got some great insight, he can tell a story, and I loved his sense of humour. Heck, I even loved his dog taking part for a short while today. Oh, and chefs being chefs, there are a few explicit words in today's episode, just so you know. Let's get to the virtual talk now with a connection between British Columbia and Wisconsin. Here's my interview with Chef Dave Heidi. Chef Dave Heidi, thanks so much for joining me. This is great that we have this connection between the west coast of Canada and I guess we would say the Midwest of the U.S., Madison, Madison Wisconsin. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for being on Chef Chefdemoni.
1: Of course, so happy to be here. Yeah, it's midwest, but we're we're about as north as it goes. Our cabin we go to is just on the border of Canada. so we're it's it's North Midwest,
0: North Midwest. ok. Well, you know it's interesting. I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is uh, in Northwestern Ontario. The closest American city of any size would be Duluth, Minnesota, about four oh, sure. hours south but in addition to having done a bit of cooking i have another uh, skill that comes out sometimes i play the bagpipes and our pipe band used to go down still does actually but not with me anymore cuz i'm on the west coast and play every year in and you may have heard of this festival an apple festival in bayfield wisconsin which is right on the water and it was this is this gorgeous little town of very few people but every fall around the apple harvest time seemingly tens of thousands of people descend on this place and have a great party to celebrate apples. So I have very fond apple-driven memories of Wisconsin. Well, actually, I went to
1: school in St. Cloud, which is right near Duluth. So I mean, we we must have been pretty close. That was back in Ninety-eight,
0: ninety-nine. Okay, yeah, 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 absolutely, wonderful. Well, listen, while we're talking about uh, early days, earlier days in our lives, can you tell us, please, chef, about how you got started in the in the cooking world? Was this something you loved as a kid? How did you come to to get involved in cooking?
1: Yeah, no, my, my my love of cooking definitely came a little bit later in life. I was going to school originally to be a pilot, and I was also going to school to pre- pre-law. You know, I think we all have that little journey of who are we going to be. I changed my major like seven times because I, I never really fell in love with it. You have all these like pros and cons. I loved art. I love science. I love teaching. But then with each one of those different things, there was a big caveat, right? So like I was really excited about pre-law, but then I was like, oh, it's going to be like either 80 hours a week and never see my family and fight for good or work more like 45 50 hours a week and fight for evil and like i i didn't i didn't really want to choose either of those and then when it came to aviation my first day leaving high school i already had my private pilot's license and i was IFR certified and VFR certified and ready to fly and my first day of class at St. Cloud State, which is why I went there, the teacher said, hey, just so you know, any of you guys who want to be a pilot, you should just quit right now. Right now, and this was in 98, they're like, you know, one, one airplane can already take off, taxi, land, fly, everything by itself. At that point, there were three people in a cockpit. Then there were two. And, you know, right now, the only reason there are people in the cockpit is just to make you feel good. So uh, <laughs> so I was like, OK, so then I started to look into art. I'm really into ceramics. And then I was like, OK, how am I going to support a family on art, maybe art education? But then again, how do you support a family on that? And then I was like, well, I'll go into pre-law. And then that discussion happened. And but what throughout all of that, I really started falling in love with cooking. I was living in my in a house and I had four roommates and every Wednesday they would bring over groceries and I would just cook something up. Um, and just make up something. And they learned really quick, they should bring good ingredients because then they got good food. If they brought garbage (laughs) ingredients, I'd still cook it, but
0: (laughs) they had to eat it. The outcome wouldn't uh, be quite the same.
1: Well, they started trying to like stump me, like Dave's food always tastes good. Let's bring him some stuff that like, there's no way he could make taste good. And like, Sometimes I did, and sometimes I didn't, but that was on them. But but then while I was like doing all these like transitions and in, in cooking, there was a restaurant that was a semi fine dining restaurant called Mulligans that was like on a golf course. It was just opening up, and it was huge, like a 300 seat wild game, like awesome restaurant. And all my friends were like, "You should, you know, go be a part of it and and see what you can do." And I remember I, I applied there to be a to be a prep cook. And then about a week into my about a week into my my work there, the fryer guy dropped his tongs in the fryer and reached in to grab them. so that oh. needless to say yeah needless to say put him out of commission for a little bit and then after that about a month after i was there starting as the fry because they were like do you want to start being on the line i was like okay and then about a month after that then i the lead saute guy got into it with the sous chef and then the sous chef fired him on the spot and so was, they were like hey you want to do saute and i was like Okay. So <laughs> I jumped on <laughs> right. So I, I jumped on saute and then about a month after being on saute, the sous chef got a job offer in Minneapolis, St. Paul and just quit. And the exec was like, Hey, do you want to be the Sous Chef? And I was like Okay, and this is like seriously like three and a half months into into cooking, and then after that, then the executive chef then got into it with the owner, and the owner wanted to fire the executive chef and give me the job, and I was like, I've literally been cooking for like five months, I have no freaking clue what I'm doing, so I turned in my notice, and I was like, I think this is a little not for me, and I went into I went to Le Cordon Bleu, graduated top of my class there, and then went out to eventually work at a couple Michelin starred restaurants out in California, and then came back to Madison to. Uh, raise my family and, you know, ended up working at some great restaurants here and then eventually opened up my own place. It was called Liliana. It is called Liliana's and it's named after my firstborn kid. And then five years later, opened up Charlie's on Main after my son, Charlie. And then
0: now we're on our newest venture, which is called Little John's, named after my youngest, John. And and I absolutely want to get to what you're doing currently. I'm I'm curious, did you notice any difference between California and more Midwest? And that could be I guess on any side, whether it was just the the way the kitchens were run or I imagine ingredients were different. What, What did you notice as you traveled around the country?
1: Yeah, you know, in so I lived in San Diego, which is where my wife is from. There were pros and cons. The con was, you know, San Diego is basically touching Mexico, and so there were a ton of people looking for work constantly. So I was working at one of the most expensive restaurants in Southern California, and I was the highest-paid cook in the kitchen besides the sous and the exec. And I was making ten bucks an hour. And granted, this was a while ago, but the wages haven't really changed that much in our industry. Maybe I'd be making thirteen dollars an hour today. You know, that was that was tough and. High. Housing is so much more expensive. I mean, like, even at the time, a, like, shack on, like, no land, you know, would have been four hundred and eighty five hundred thousand dollars 500000 you know, versus in Madison at the time, you could get a really nice house with four bedrooms and three baths and all that for, like, 200000 so... Right. We knew if yeah, we wanted to raise a family. And the price for the, the entree, right? Like you don't pay that much more for food. Like a subway sandwich still costs the same in LA as it does in Madison. It's not like you can charge a lot more. But the biggest the biggest pro for all of that though, um, was that in Madison, you really have to try if you want to use local. And there are a lot of amazing chefs here who do that, me included. But In California, you just use local because everything's grown in California. Like everyone uses local. It's not anything (laughs) new. And the seasons are so long, you know, so like strawberries, they're just always in season. Like you can always get strawberries. And in Wisconsin, I've got a three week window that I can get strawberries. So in terms of cooking, it was always amazing. The quality of produce I could get on a daily basis was just insane in California.
0: I notice it here, having grown up in northwestern Ontario and now living, you know, now we're just outside of Vancouver, the growing season here is so much longer. What would you say about the industry? You mentioned wages. You know, obviously the industry has had some problems in terms of hours demands. It's had problems in terms of treating its staff respectfully. Are things changing and do you see anything, are there any big structural things that you think still need to change in the industry? What What does the industry need to work on?
1: I think there are two big ones. One is the discrepancy between front of house and back of house. Cooks, even if you pay them 15 or 20, 20 bucks an hour, you're still gonna be left with the huge discrepancy between that and front of house, especially in fine dining. You know, you have a cook who works from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. busting their butt all day long, sweating in a hot kitchen, and they'll walk out of there with 150 bucks. And then you have a server who comes in from 530 until 1030 at night, and they'll walk out with $400, you know, and so there's this like, big discrepancy. So that's one part. And I think the other thing that is really just kills our industry is that even just since I opened my first place 14 years ago, the average cost for labor has gone through the roof. The average cost for food has gone through the roof. The, I mean, like literally every single cost has almost doubled since I opened. But do you think the price of my entree has doubled? Nope. And nope. so the biggest challenge that restaurants have right now is we kind of all need to team up and say like, hey we shouldn't be charging these stupid margins. We should be giving our margins so that we can pay living wage to our staff so that we can help get health benefits. I mean, maybe 1% of restaurants in the United States give full benefits to their staff. You know, that's, and we are, restaurants are the number one employer just underneath government in the United States. So, you know, when you look at things like COVID that happened, it left a lot of people really affected because they didn't have health insurance. They don't have like a 401k or retirement or any of those benefits that you need to survive. Which leads me to the, the final problem, which is tipping. You know, I, I'm not actually sure in Canada as much, but I know definitely in the U.S. we are all tip based for our
0: servers. It's, it's very much the same here. There have been a couple of restaurants that have, I can think of one on Vancouver Island that tried it to that that went with, the you know, the gratuity in model And it just didn't last because, of course, they're having to put their prices up 20 percent over their competitors. And it just.
1: Yeah. So we actually just launched um, a little bit ago, about six months ago, and it's been working great. Um, We didn't like the discrepancy between front of house and back of house, like I mentioned before. And we didn't like a lot of the things that come with that. And we also don't like I think it's stupid that you determine whether or not your server gets their income like i can't imagine any can you imagine as an attorney being like well you know you didn't get me off so like i'm um, i'm not going to tip you anything like i'll give you a base wage of 233 an hour but, like, if but you want it. more, I'll I'll tip you. But, like, I can't imagine. Or, like, getting your oil changed or, like, literally any other thing. We Going to Target and being like, hey, I want my cake. But you know what? The guy didn't smile enough, so I'm not going to pay you for it. I'm not going to with it.
0: I'm just taking it.
1: It doesn't work that way, right? But we're totally okay with our industry. So we, what we do is we now charge a 20% service charge onto every ticket that comes in. So... Um, The difference between a service charge and a tip is that a service charge is a fee or a cost, and we can divide that however we want. And so we take 10 percent of that and we take it for the house but because we're able to do that we're able to provide benefits, we're able to pay every single person on our staff 15 bucks an hour starting. Front of house, back of house, everything, they start at 15, which is definitely higher than the industry average here in Madison and most of my staff are making 18 to 20 an hour base and then the other 10% gets divided among tips between the staff. So um, and gets divided equally among everyone, the servers, the hosts, the the bartenders that I mean you name it and then we actually we do what every other industry does, we pay our managers more. We pay the servers who have been with us longer we pay them more i mean like imagine as an attorney just being like hey i'm gonna keep paying you your base wage that i hired you at for all attorney forever and ever forever Forever. and that's what most restaurants are a server will start out at three dollars an hour and maybe after 15 years experience they're making six dollars or eight dollars an hour it just doesn't make sense like you want to be able to reward those people because that's what keeps people in so anyway we've been able to do that and that's been that's been great Great
0: to hear. Great to hear. Chef, do you see, and, and maybe this ties into what you were just talking about with sort of general recognition that we, we as a collective, have got to do something different in the way we approach restaurants, treat staff, how we determine that uh, what we're going to pay for food and pay for the experience. Can you comment on, on my responsibilities? I'm pointing to me as a typical customer. Like so often in the restaurant world, there's this focus on what can the restaurant do for me the consumer what is the chef going to prepare that's amazing how is the service going to be better than the than the place down the street if we want and i do good restaurants what is the responsibility on me as a consumer and what can i do and that's sort of a maybe a a more uh, giving perspective <laughs> you know what can we all do together to the, to improve the industry but also what can i do selfishly to improve my own experience? Like, what, do, what I, I think that, that can benefit me. Anyway, that's a long rambling question. The question is, what can consumers do to improve their own experiences?
1: Well, I think there are two. I think one, we as consumers tend to, even though we don't think we do, we tend to always shop based on value dollar. We don't tend to shop on the things that we think we shop on. And I'll give you an example. When I ask anyone what's important to you at the restaurants that you eat at, like just generally, why do you care? Care about the restaurants you dine at. One of the things I typically hear is the places that help in the community, uh, the ones that buy local, um, the ones that pay a living wage to their staff. Uh, like I'll hear all of these things, right? And so I'm like, okay, cool. I'll make a restaurant that does all of those things. I'll pay a living wage. I'll support local. I'll buy from local farms. I'll buy from local. Uh, my bread will make locally in-house, or we'll buy from a local bread maker, or like all these things. We'll do every single thing you asked. And then people are like, oh, wait, when you do all of that, it's going to mean that instead of paying $10 for a burger, I have to pay 13 Well, fuck that. I want to go to the place that is $10 a burger. And so people have this kind of idea that they think that their consumer purchases are hidden, right? Because we don't watch them on a daily basis. We don't know. But like... I'll I'll so I'm relatively well known in Madison and I'll be out and about and so many times every single month I'll have people come up to me and say oh chef like love what you do in the community you're my favorite restaurant and I'll be like wow thank you when's the last time you were in
0: (laughs) right familiar (laughs) to me
1: and they'll (laughs) be like oh well we come every year on our anniversary And I'm like well I'm not your favorite restaurant then like not to be a dick but like I'm not your favorite restaurant, like your favorite restaurant, you go to at least once a month, if not once a week, they know your name when you walk in the door, like that's your favorite restaurant. And I'm guessing that the average dollar per your check average is way lower too, which is okay. I understand that. But like, I think we also tend to like, I'll give you another example. So there's a restaurant. It is a kind of chain version of Italian food. I'll share two dishes with you. One is a dish that they make. So it's a pasta with peppers and sausage. And it's boxed dry pasta that costs 80 cents a pound that they get four portions of per pound. So about 20 cents of cost. Then they have the Italian sausages, which are just the eight to one count sausages that they pay 2.89 a pound for so we're talking about 50 cents for the sausage and then the peppers are just a fajita pepper that they microwave and then put on the pasta that's already been cooked and everything they don't even like cook it down and then the tomato sauce is out of a number 10 can and they all they do is they add oregano and pepper to it and they call it house made sauce so the total food cost for that dish is around two dollars and eight cents, right? So it costs them two dollars and eight cents, and they charge sixteen ninety nine for that dish on their menu. Now, my restaurant is live music. We pay living wage to people. We support local farms. I have a pasta dish. It's called the Pasta Liliana after our, the namesake of our restaurant. And there we have house-made pappardelle pasta. We have a red pepper cream sauce that we make completely from scratch using local ingredients. We have uh, local chicken, which as you know is not cheap, that we use in-house. We have 1620 jumbo count shrimp and we have andouille sausage that we import from Crescent City Meats in New Orleans. Um, and then it's topped with sarvecchio, fresh chives that are grown from a local farmer. So you can feel the difference between those two dishes.
0: Absolutely. Even though it is not eight o'clock in the morning here. I'm starting to crave this right now. <laughs> it sounds fantastic. But like, as an example, we pay for all the ingredients on that.
1: It costs us almost $6.90 a dish and we charge $18. So we charge literally a dollar more and our food cost is five times greater than the other place, right? And yet still we'll have people who are like, oh, you know, I'd go to Liliana's more often, but it's just a little too expensive for me, yeah. right? And so like, so that is one of the biggest challenges as a consumer is to really say, hey, Maybe instead of supporting a mediocre restaurant that does nothing for the community and doesn't give back and doesn't help and doesn't support local farms and just pays their staff like their CEO and their whatever a shit ton of money. Let me make that conscious decision to support the local guy to who's really doing it right. But it takes an active conscience to do it. You can't just think you do because the other really big problem with our whole industry is greenwashing. And I'll give you a great example. Right. So we buy local. But here, let's do two little thought experiments. Are you guys ready? So this is for you and anyone who's listening. Two thought experiences, okay? So we're a fine dining restaurant. We support local farms. You come into my restaurant knowing all of that. And the server approaches your table and they say, hey, have you been here before? You're like, no. And they're like, oh, well, let me tell you, we support local farms. We buy local. We do all this. And they say, Chef Dave has a special tonight only. uh, And here's the deal. 100% of the ingredients, we're not going to tell you what it is, but 100% of the ingredients were all produced within 100 miles of this building. Um, So he's really proud of this dish. And it's only $18. Are you guys interested in trying it out? And you're like, yeah. Yeah. Sure, that sounds great. Hundred, you know, hundred miles. That sounds great. You're thinking in your head, I guarantee you, a local farm, a local cheese maker, a local pasta maker, a local breadsmith. You know, like all these different things. And what if I deliver to your plate country hearth bread with two slices of Oscar Mayer bologna, a slice of craft cheese, a little bit of craft mayo, and then I also give you a Miller Lite. And I'm like, here, 18 bucks. 18 bucks. And now it's did I true Did I lie? I mean 100% of that is produced within 100 miles of the city of Madison. Right. So there's this perception and that's greenwashing, right? And another version of greenwashing would be like, okay, you come back a second time because you're in town, you came to eat at my restaurant, and you're like, okay, I'm going back and I'm going to give Dave a piece of my mind. And now I come out to your table, I'm like, I it's just we just wanted to show why it's important, but here, here's what I'm doing instead. Now, instead of just, like, produce within 100 miles, no, no, we're going to get 100% of our ingredients within 15 minutes of my restaurant. So all of our ingredients, and they'll all be whole ingredients, no processed food. So all of our produce, all of our meat will all be procured within within 15 minutes of my restaurant, right? And you you look around the city of Madison, there's farms everywhere, and you're like, wow, okay, I'm going to trust you this time, Dave. I'm going to buy this dish from you. Because you told me 100% of your ingredients were procured from within 15 minutes of your building, and you mentioned all whole ingredients, so no Miller Lite or Country Hearth bread. I expect that. Now, what if I do this? What if you watch me get in my car, and I drive over to the Walmart, and I purchase all of my ingredients from the local Walmart? Did minutes. I tell the truth? Yep. <laughs> it's 15 minutes away, man. Did I tell the truth? Yep. But is it what you thought? Nope. Nope. And so this is where all of that is important, because you ask, what can you do as a consumer? Actually ask your servers, like, hey, what local farms do you support? Like you say, we buy local. Who do you buy local from? Like, what are some farms? Like, can you ask the chefs? Like, what are five farms you buy from? Like, just give me five. Like, you don't have to list off 40. Tell me five farms you buy from, right? Or, you know, just like ask, you know, when they say it's local sustainable seafood, say, oh, that's awesome where do you get your fish from? You know, like what bay did the fish come from? What was the local fishery you bought your fish from? I mean, like, especially you on the coast, that is a huge one all the time where people are saying wild caught, blah, blah, blah. And then you look and it's like Alaskan salmon, which is just code for farm raised, right? So part of the most important thing, and this is the hard part where a lot of people forget and lose it, is that in order to be a good consumer, it it takes energy and it takes time and it takes effort. And a lot of people are like, I'm just hungry i want some calories and like no one's watching me do this purchase they don't know that i'm at chick-fil-a right now i could just tell them i'll just check in at a local place and then i'll go grab some chicken nuggets you know
0: (laughs) thank you for all of that chef that's uh, the thought experiments are great and i think if people haven't thought about that before they are now and that's really important i can think of one restaurant and i'm biased of course this is burdock and co in Vancouver. Where my mentor chef Andrea Carlson is the she's the chef and the owner. and um, quite regularly you'll see on the menu there farmers' names actually built into the menu items. So you know and they're very proud rightfully of the sourcing that they do and they put the they put the farmers' front and center actually on the menu, which I think is a great idea.
1: When we do that, too, I think one of the problems is, though, is that, like, let's do another thought experiment. (laughs) I am I'm a chef restaurateur next door to a really amazing farm to table cafe. And I see that they're doing that. All I have to do is Google meat or like beef Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm going to get or beef farmer, Madison, Wisconsin, and just look for people who sell wholesale. That farmer is never going into your restaurant. They're never going to know how many consumers actually check up and see. Is this actually from that farm? And then the other thing you, that a lot of restaurants do, they'll buy because most small farmers, especially with beef, they have to freeze it, right? Because you can't you can't be slaughtering animals every single week if you're a small farmer. You're doing it once every six months and you store up the excess. So what uh, some kind of like not so great places will do is they'll buy like 100 pounds of frozen ground beef from a local farmer and then what they'll really be using is the commodity beef that they paid $265 a pound for. And so like it's not to say that what she's doing isn't perfect. I know sh- I know she is and I know I am. But again, this is where there are it's ways really to game important. the system. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah. and it's and some of it is like untraceable. Like that one is really hard to prove because, like, yes, they're still supporting that farm, but not to the degree that you think they are.
0: You, you know, think so, are. yeah. You know what? What I'm thinking is um, comments I've heard in other interviews, and this is my one of the things that I try to do is, and I think really benefits the consumer is to become a regular. So at a restaurant, right, where they actually do know you, you develop relationships. Maybe if it's an open kitchen. With the with the chef and the cooks, certainly with the servers, and that to me is can be almost a magic bullet, right? Because then you're yep. you're you're engaged with these people, so you're, you're going to get a sense over time. You're going to know pretty quickly if they're sneaking in a little really nice beef into the commodity stuff.
1: For sure, no, that's a hundred percent true. You know, you really have to. I think I think also when you make those relationships, you'll learn really quickly if the servers are just telling you BS or if you're actually if you actually know the truth, right? And like also it's okay like to call a farm that a restaurant says is on its menu and be like, hey, it doesn't have to be in a sneaky way. It can just be like, Hey, I had a burger with your meat on it at XX restaurant. Tell me more about you guys, you know? Yeah. Like I think there's also in greenwashing, there's like I, I don't know any farms that any any producers would be like you but there's like a big one would be like hillshire farm right I and mean, that's a huge one but like Hillshire farm sounds like it's a local mom and pop farm down the road right but it's not at all it's right huge. it's a huge ass conglomerate <laughs> and there are. A lot of big manufacturers who create secondary labels that you don't know that are restaurant only, and they'll put something farm in the label. So, again, this is where it's really important. Just like everyone has a mobile computer with them at all times, whip it out, man, and just Google the farms that they say, do a little bit of research, because most of those small farms are also really proud of the restaurants that they serve at. So, and just make sure. Say. Absolutely. So, just make sure it goes both ways, you know? Great advice.
0: Well, chef, tell us about your uh, about your operations now. What's going on? I know COVID has changed so much in the industry, but I'd love to hear a little about. Uh, and we, we've really got to keep a lot of time for Little John's and the what I think are some great initiatives you're doing there. But maybe tell us a bit about Liliana's. You've had this nom 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 boxes going on. I'd, I'd love to hear about. Uh, love to hear about that
1: yeah so Covid hit, and we we've always done a lot in the community. We do about a hundred thousand dollars a year giving back every year between our restaurants and it's always direct access. We don't do advertising or marketing. We thought, hey, instead of blowing a hundred grand a year on ads, what if we just give it to people in the community who need it? You know so what if we do our our actions through giving so that's what we do. We don't do any paid ads or anything and when Covid hit, we we work with a lot of those small farmers that we've been talking about, and we were really worried what's going to happen to them. You know, most of the restaurants, most of the farms we work with, they only sell to restaurants and most restaurants shut down at least for a long period of time, right at the beginning of growing season. A lot of those restaurants were going through like 300 pounds of beef a week. And so most of those farms didn't need a like a way to off sell retail, you know, so they didn't have a direct to consumer model. And so we were really worried about what are these farms going to do? So we we talked to all the different farms we buy from and we said, hey, how are you doing? The ones that are like, oh, we're great. We just opened up a shop on our farm and people are coming and picking up from us. Great. And then the farms that we talked to, they are like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, What's I, I'm fucked. Like, I don't know. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And so those, we put together these baskets. It was called Nom Nom Nom. And we're actually going to be launching it again in another month once there's some produce here in Madison. Um, and basically what they are is they're a meal kit done with full raw product. There's no, there's no processed or chopped anything. It's all whole. So the idea, the feeling was, I'm all about tangibles and feelings and stuff like that. And I wanted people, when they open up that box, for it to smell like they're bagwood at the farmer's market. You know, I want the fresh smell of produce. and I want to see them to see what the actual vegetable looked like. You know, what does a bleeding heart radish look like? You know, like what about daikon? Like what about different kinds of greens that we've only seen processed and cut up? I wanted them to be able to be in connection and touch the produce in the whole form. So each kit had a bunch of different produce. It had protein from local farms. Um, 100% of the ingredients there all had to be produced locally. So even we had locally made balsamic vinegar. Um, we had the only things in there that we didn't include were oil, salt, and pepper. So we assumed everyone would have that at home. But other than that, if it was an ingredient, it was in the box and it came from local. Uh, but it was also a fun challenge. So we it was not only that, but it was also working with local chefs in the area to give them an opportunity to have some funds. So they got a percentage of each one of the boxes as well. Um, and it was a way to kind of help restaurants out that were all closed and we were worried about them. So it was an initiative really to help both farms and restaurants. And, you know, it's funny. I uh, So the, the Restaurant Recovery Act was just passed a little bit ago. And I don't know if you know how that works, but the no, Restaurant Recovery Act was, basically says, your sales in 2019, minus your sales in 2020, minus your first round of PPP, minus if you took the second round of PPP, if there's any difference left from that, then we'll give it to you. Got it.
0: Which okay. is great, and so, right? And so one other piece, I don't know, PPP, what is that?
1: Uh, it's the, so the United States put together this uh, payroll protection plan, which basically gave you eight weeks of payroll as cost to help make sure you were keeping your employees paid Got it. and on hire. Got it. And you could spend that money on employee, uh, like on labor, uh, you could spend up to 50% of, or 40% of it on your, um, your building. So, it was a great way to try and help keep restaurants afloat. So this was this Restaurant um, Recovery Act in the United States that was really could be really helpful. But here's where it's, it, it sucks. We also, when all this happened, we started a pay what you can soup program so that anyone could get food no matter what. And we did it at both our restaurants, Liliana's and Charlie's. And anyone could come in regardless of means and get a warm meal. Like no questions asked and you could pay it forward or you could just take it for free or you could buy one yourself. It was just, it's kind of what our model for Little John's is that I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, but we wanted to kind of test that model on a big scale. And it was amazing. Um, we, we brought in tons of pay what you can soups, in fact, more than people who came in to get the free one. So then we started doing a meal outreach program that we did for the homeless shelters in the area and the soup kitchens where we would produce the food from the money raised from that pay it forward soup program to help feed people in need, right? Right. So it was great, so the Nom 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 Kit and the Pay It Forward Sue program, we ended up doing about $375,000 and putting back to the community. Well, here's the downside, is that we did it all since we weren't a 501 c 3 it all came in as sales right uh, so <laughs>
0: so that affects your restaurant recovery act number so we if i had done nothing
1: if i had not helped the community at all we would get from uncle sam a check for $300,000 and because uh. we did what we did in the community we're getting $0 so right this is one of those things that's like tough and but the, but here's the best part even knowing that, and $300,000 is a lot of money. It's more than most restaurateurs will ever get over the course of multiple (laughs) years, unless you're a huge restaurant. Even if I knew all of that, and I could go back in time and change things, I wouldn't change a thing. Like My farmers are still with me now because of that program. We fed thousands of people food that they wouldn't have had access to. Like I would never go back and take it. So what we're trying to do now is advocate and say, hey, don't punish the people who are the helpers give them the rewards. Like if they created a program to help during a time of stress and national, like lift those people up, man, you know? So anyway, that's our Nom 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 Kit and
0: our Pay It Forward Soup program, which were two of our big kind of give back programs in the community. So good to hear about. So good to hear. Well, let's get into Little John's and I'll I'll introduce this topic by asking you about a problem that exists in the restaurant world, but of course, well beyond the restaurant world, and that's food waste. What is the problem with food waste and, and what are you doing about it?
1: Yeah, well, so great, great thing. So food waste and food excess are similar, but not exactly the same. So food waste would be things that a restaurant throws out or a home throws out, and that would be the end of its life. So at a restaurant, so most restaurants, not all, but most restaurants, 99% of restaurants, if they're throwing it out, you shouldn't use it anymore. The idea of a restaurant is to use everything, right? So, you know, if you have peelings of carrots and onions and celery heart, well, you chop that up and you put it in a stock. You know, If you have fish that's more than two days old and you want it to be at its absolute freshest, well, then you poach all the fish off and you save it for fish cakes later, right? Like there's always, or you make a soup. Like there's so many things you can do with product while it's still fresh to reconstitute it. And usually by the time we throw it out, it can't be reconstituted anymore. So don't ever go raiding restaurant dumpsters because you will not find you, that you much edible food. Right? <laughs> right. And, and, and honestly, like if it's like not bad, but it's not what you want to serve a customer, a lot of times it goes into staff meal staff or you meal, let the, sure. yeah, you know, so restaurants actually have quite a bit of waste, but most of the food waste we have is the stuff the consumer doesn't finish. And we end up throwing into the bin where it really is horrible is in pre-consumer access. So what I mean by that is from our wholesalers at restaurants um, or from grocery stores. And I think grocery stores are probably the easiest for most listeners to kind of relate to. So in the United States, and this is actually global, but in the United States, we throw away 40% of all food produced here in the US, right? So 40% of the food ends up in a landfill. And that's actually true for all of North America. So Canada is up in there too, and Mexico. So all three of us, man, we're equal opportunity offenders. And one of the things that's so interesting about that though, is that that's all pre-consumer. So that's before it goes into your house, before it goes into my restaurant, 40% of food is thrown away. And you don't really realize how much it is until you start seeing it, until you start researching that. Um, We could feed every single person in North America for free with the amount of excess that's getting thrown out every single day. Every single person could get a meal for free, multiple meals a day. We could feed everybody full meals with how much we throw out. And, And part of that is consumers, like it's the consumer's fault. So an example would be a grocery store has milk that it wants to sell, and it has a sell-by date on it. I'm sure you've seen that on your milk, right? It has a sell-by date. Well, here's the thing. A sell-by date is exactly that. It's not an expiration date. It's when you need to sell it by. But if you go to a grocery store and you buy a gallon of milk <clears throat> and you take it home and you see the sell-by date is the same day you bought it, what's your con- what's your confidence in that grocery store going to be like? It's going to be pretty bad, yeah. right? Yeah, now, absolutely. that sell-by date means that you still have a full week left to use it, right? You still have a week past the sell-by date on milk. But most people, when they look at that, they're like, oh, it's expired. Man, I'm never shopping at that store again. So most grocery stores will actually pull milk up to a week before the sell-by date so that the consumer confidence is good. Same thing with eggs. Eggs are good for 30 days past their sell-by date. So a month past their sell-by date, eggs are still good. So there are all these things that we do. And then also, um, I want you to think about when you go and you buy raspberries or strawberries at the grocery store, right? What's the very first thing? Do you just grab the first strawberry you see? oh hell no nope. man you pick nope. it up you look underneath <laughs> yeah, you look at yeah, that weird yeah. like diaper thing that's on the bottom of the raspberries for any like red bleed through <laughs> right. right you you do you do all these different things like when you go like let's say you need an apple you don't just grab the first five apples right you pick up each individual one and you give it like a full turn your head and cough you know kind of once <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and like and that's how we shop right so as consumers we're really picky So then that pushes a problem onto the grocer, right? So the grocer then, there are two things with groceries that happen. One, as a grocer, you can't just buy 10 new tomatoes, right? If you need to sell 10 more tomatoes, you can't buy 10. You buy a case of tomatoes, right? Right, yeah. Well, if I have, let's say, 5 pounds or 10 pounds of tomatoes sitting out, and I bring in a 50-pound box of new tomatoes, If I put the new tomatoes out with the old tomatoes, A, they're going to start emitting methane gas, which is going to make them all deteriorate quicker. But also, no one's going to buy those old 10 tomatoes with the beautiful new 50 tomatoes, right? They're going to pick the new 50 ones from underneath. And then the, the other thing is, though, so some people say, like, well, just keep out the 10 tomatoes until you sell through most of them and then put out your 50. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, the consumers can be like, oh, they only have one or two tomatoes. Right. They only have these manky old tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and not only that, but how we shop. And this is one of the biggest things with grocers. We shop based on excess. Right. So I want you to think about this. We'll do another brain thought experiment for you and for people listening. Right. Think about. When you're at a party and there's food that's being passed, which I know during COVID we haven't seen that <laughs> yeah, in over I a year, seen that in
0: a bit, but I can right? remember it.
1: But we, we pass around pictures like shrimp cocktail, and they're passing around shrimp cocktail. If there are 75 shrimp on this tray that this guy is passing around, you might grab like three or four of them and put them on your napkin, right, to snack. But if that guy is passing around a tray and it's only got seven shrimp on it, you're only going to take one. So we do the same thing with purchasing, right? So let's say you wanted to buy apples from a grocery store. If you go to buy apples from a grocery store, if there's only seven apples and you really want that apple, you might buy one or two. You may even skip it altogether, though. If you go and there's like a plethora, like 200 apples beautifully shining and sitting there, you might buy a dozen apples i going to so, buy more. So grocers know that, right? So that's why when you go to a grocery store, you never see empty slots. It never looks like anyone's touched it. It looks like a brand new buffet at a wedding, right? Like it's stocked to the brim. And that's because that's how we buy. But it also leads to a huge amount of excess. So yeah, so we, we, we started to say, hey, if we're throwing away all this excess and it's beautiful, like some of the produce we're getting, in fact, most of the produce we're getting is better than the stuff I get at my restaurant, like delivered from my purveyors, because The way that works is most grocers get the A produce and all the B produce comes into the restaurants, right? So the perfect stuff goes for retail and the not as perfect stuff because we're just chopping it up and throwing it in the soup. You know what to do with it anyway, right? Exactly, right? And the consumer never sees it. They don't care if a chef doesn't care if one of them has a tiny little brown spot on it.
0: Like we cut it off. Right. Right. It's coming out wow um, makes a lot of sense okay so now you're getting so tell us how it works you're you're recovering little Johns is effectively recovering food that's coming from uh, wholesalers just come from retailers and and then and then what are you doing with it how does it get processed by you and, and what's the impact on the community?
1: Yes, we're actually in the middle of raising funds for, uh, um, we've got to raise about 6 million to build our new facility, but it'll be able to put out 30,000 meals a week once it's up and running, all with excess. So zero food costs. You can imagine your chef mentor friend, if you're like, you hey, <laughs> a to your restaurant, right? Zero food <laughs> costs on any product. And so that's kind of what we're doing is being able to offer affordable meals for people. So we'll be able to put out about 30,000 meals a week um, out of this facility when it's up and running, and just so you know, like just to give your people an idea of scale, right now we're rescuing. Um, just since October, we've rescued almost thirty tons of food, and we've only done that from one single grocery store. Oh. One grocery store. So there are wow. just in Dane County, which is the city of Madison area, just in Dane County, there are thirty-eight grocery stores. So if you can imagine how much excess just in our little county is, you know, yeah. like it's 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 crazy.
0: It's off the charts! Wow. So, how is it going to? How is it going to? Well, sorry, let me back that up. Is are under the Little John's brand? Are you putting out meals now, or is yes. that done? Through, okay, so that's yep. happening now. You're just building a, a big, big, big new facility where you yep. can get uh, more people producing it. So, tell us a little bit more about the model. People coming in for food because one of the things that I've heard you say that I that I found really interesting was that if it's only people who are extremely food insecure, if it's only the homeless who are coming in to access what you're doing through Little John's, you'll consider that you haven't met your mission. So why is that? And what is the mix of people that you want coming in? Yeah, of course. So, sorry, my dog. Can you hear the dog barking in the background? <laughs> a bit. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Hey guys, my could you could sure. you try and keep the dog
1: settled just for a sec? So, so you know, it's actually great you bring that up though, because one of our biggest problems is I, and this actually came from my restaurant Liliana's. It was kind of an epiphany one day. You know, we use nothing but the best produce from local farms, the best seafood, the best everything, and with all of that, one of the things I also noticed is that my clientele base was a very particular set of a clientele base, right? But then when I looked at when I went to a different restaurant, like noodles and company I don't know if you guys have those up in Canada but like mm-hmm. it's a like it's a nice like fast casual thing but I looked there and I was like man like a hundred percent of my customers from Liliana's could eat at this place but maybe only you know 25 percent of the people here could eat at Liliana's and then you think about like Taco Bell right like a hundred percent of my customers at one point in time have had that 2 a.m go through the drive-through <laughs> and get that like nasty taco with or bean burrito thing right but but if you ask the average person who goes to Taco Bell, have you been to a restaurant like Liliana's before? Maybe 2%, 3% of the people that eat there have. And then you go down one stop lower to a soup kitchen or a food pantry. None of my customers from Liliana's have ever eaten at a soup kitchen or food pantry. And none of the people at a soup kitchen or food pantry have ever eaten at Liliana's. And there's a huge disconnect there. And so what I wanted is I wanted a place where anyone regardless of means could still have access to the things you get at Liliana's the amazing fresh produce the the wonderful proteins the stuff that's good for you and tastes good and is made with love like those are the things i want to be able to give people
0: yeah, that is wonderful. What and 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 the mix. So, how does it work in terms of people like on uh, on the finance side? People coming yeah. in. So and maybe speak to to those various uh, groups that you've identified. People who are lucky enough to be able to choose to eat at Liliana's whenever they want. Uh, how are they paying? And then people who have less privilege, less access to food, to money. How how are they how are they served? Yeah, so it's actually one of the coolest things about our model is because we have
1: 100% food access, I don't really care how much money I make from each dish, right? And so what we're able to do is we're able to offer it all at a pay-what-you-can model. So someone who may be experiencing homelessness, or honestly, like I think that's the usual face of food insecurity that people try to put, but food insecurity is actually not people who are experiencing homelessness. There are so many programs set up to feed those people. What real food insecurity is, is that single mom with three kids who has a job and She doesn't apply for any of those benefits because she can't because she makes $21,000 instead of $19,000. So she's lost all of her benefits and she doesn't. She has to pay for healthcare out of pocket. Right. You know, so for us, it's really food insecure has so many different faces. It could also be especially with covid. There are people who live in million dollar homes and drive an $80,000 car that have no money in their account because they've been unemployed for a year, you know, and they've burned through all their savings. So like food insecurity has no real face. So my whole goal of this is to say, hey, man, there may be someone who's like an attorney who maybe uh, studied a little bit in cooking and really has a good appreciation for food and has a little video blog and uh, (laughs) audio blog. And he may decide that he wants to come in and he's got some extra cash in his pocket and he may pay because he knows that this program is going to train veterans and feed people in need and use up excess. He's like, you know what? There's a cool mission. I'll pay 30 bucks for my lunch today. It's fine. I've got 50 in my pocket. I'm still good if I pay 30. And then there may be someone who comes in and they're just like a college student. They still have some cash, but not a lot. Maybe they pay eight bucks for their lunch, which is about the average for lunch. And then maybe there's someone who comes in who's totally food insecure. And again, that's that mom with three kids and she gets food for her whole family and pays two dollars. But you know what? It doesn't matter because it all balances out. um, It all works
0: out. That really is great. And I like the sounds of that guy you're describing there. Yeah, he (laughs) he he sounds pretty great. He sounds like a great guy, great guy. Well, chef, just a couple more questions. Can you tell us a bit about the about the veterans program? How that works with training? Yeah, so I have a lot of
1: friends who are veterans and the number one thing I was hearing from a lot of them was just like they didn't have a sense of place when they came back from deployment. They didn't feel like they fit in anywhere, you know, especially the ones that had continued for more than one tour who were there for like 9 years or so. They came back and they didn't really have any real life skill. Like if you're really good at killing people, there's not really a good job in the local wanted ads that are like, (laughs) this is what you need to do. Right. (laughs) And so unfortunately, a lot of them end up going into law enforcement, which is not where you want people who are focused on their first course of action is to shoot. Right. I mean, especially right. You've seen the news in America lately, right. Sure have. um, And so, you know, one of the things that we're trying to say is like, hey, like think about the hierarchy and structure in the military and then think about the hierarchy and structure in a restaurant. And it's really similar. Right. It's something that's easy to go into. It's very stop and go like nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Holy shit, everything's happening. Nothing's (laughs) happening. And so those, you already are kind of set in that mindset. It's a great way to help. So we, we started, we wanted to start this veteran training program. So it's a six month fully paid internship, um, so you get paid $15 an hour to work in our kitchens while we teach them. And by the time they leave, they'd probably have as much cooking ability as you did after your, you know, year or so of staging. Right. So, yeah. Sure. Um. and so not only do they leave there, but then there's also an amazing culinary school in Madison called Madison College. Um, they have a wonderful culinary program. So we also guarantee that any veteran that completes our six month training program um, with a plus, which is just basically you tried um, and you didn't okay, just yep. like shirk through it. it guarantees you a full ride into their culinary program completely paid for. So they'll walk away with an associate's degree in that school. In the United States, we have this thing called the GI Bill. I don't know if Canada has something similar, but it's basically the GI Bill in America guarantees that any soldier who fights for the military is guaranteed a college education. So they have a stipend of like $40,000 that they get to pay for their education. But one of the things that kind of sucks that a lot of vets don't know, I mean, people join the military to get their college education. One of the things that they don't really understand is that after you take your first draw on it, you only have 3 years to use it up or it's gone. Okay. Um, and so a lot of them don't have access to education, so this is a great way to be able to get them an associates.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. All right. Now, I'm I'm selfishly going to ask for this this is something I like to do with with guests on Chef Tony is to get some cooking tips for me and for my listeners Mm -hmm. and what I'm looking for is something that's so simple that you could hardly even call it a recipe so you don't have to write this down but what can you tell us maybe something you can describe in Thirty seconds or a minute that I can put together in my kitchen in fifteen minutes on a busy weeknight and and have some delicious food. <clears throat> so that's a great a great question. One of the things that I always believe in is
1: not teaching people recipes, but teaching them techniques. Um, because with the technique, you can. I mean, anyone can Google a recipe, right? I mean, sure, yeah. I even Google recipes, right? Everyone does it. And so, um, but one of the things that is my my favorite way to teach people how to do is a just how to sear a piece of protein. So whether it's scallops or steak or chicken breast or whatever, I'm just going to tell you. The best way to see our protein so love it first off uh, if you have a nonstick pan just take it and throw it in the trash can uh, because they're garbage for everything except for eggs and pancakes but then get a real pan get it nice and hot to the point where when you have a little bit of oil in there it's just starting to see wisps of smoke coming out and then you want to put your protein in the pan and you don't want to just set it there you want to kind of drag it through the pan a little bit so that you can tell if your pan is hot enough if your pan isn't hot enough it'll stick as you're dragging it through. But it should just kind of glide on as you're putting it in there and you should hear a really loud sizzle. And then you want to sear it until you get a nice crisp press on the on the bottom. So don't do that thing that everyone does, which is lift it up with your spatula and lift underneath. Look. Don't, do yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do it. <laughs> don't be that guy. No one likes that guy. Let it sit for at least a minute and a half until it gets a nice sear. And then you're going to put your spatula and I use a Paltex or a fish spatula. That's my favorite way to use for searing. And then you want to tilt the pan to the right, flip your protein to the left so that you don't splash it in the oil and get burns on yourself. And then what you're going to do is you're going to take some fresh pats of whole butter, turn the heat down on your pan put the butter in the pan, throw in any kind of herb that fits with whatever dish you're making. So whether it's like fresh thyme and some lemon zest, if you're making a fish or um, some rosemary and some garlic and some chives, if you're doing like a steak, but take some sort of aromatic or put it in that butter. And as it's melting, take a nice size soup spoon and just start ladling and basting over the product you just got done searing. And that's the perfect way to make 99.9% of protein.
0: Thank you, chef. That is great. A mini cooking lesson. I love it. Um, do you have recommendations, not necessarily on brand name, but when you say a, a proper pan, what would qualify? So, what what I think of a lot is, and and what I miss is that endless stream of uh, blue steel or carbon steel pans that we had in the restaurants, right? Perfectly sized to do one piece of protein, one portion of protein. Oh, they're perfect. And, yep. Yeah, and those and those are more widely available commercially now. So that I think would be one good alternative. Any others? Cast iron. Yeah, you know,
1: so cast iron's fine, but it's high maintenance. And so if you're not a high maintenance person, then that's what I always tell people is when you're looking for the right thing, it's not necessarily what a chef would use. It's what... What is best for your lifestyle. And so, you know, like for me, I actually use a lot of aluminum pans, which I would never use in a home kitchen because they don't hold on to heat well. They're horrible. But honestly, in a kitchen, I've got like a 350,000 BTU range. I don't need to worry about heat retention. It's going to get <laughs> right. enough heat it's gonna, that it wants. right get of, yeah. um, But it also depends, like a lot of people have induction burners now in their homes and they have stuff like that. And so, <clears throat> my kind of favorite go to is All Clad just because they are an incredible pan that has a great copper core, which is a great inductor. And it also so is a great insulator. It holds onto heat really well. So you get really even heat distribution. But a thick bottom pan is important if you want it to hold on to heat. So that would be if you have like an electric range or if you have an induction, you want to have a nice thick bottom pan. If you've got a really high performance gas, I actually recommend a thinner pan because it gives you that control that you get with gas to be low, high, instant high heat, instant low heat, that kind of thing. But yeah, no, I always tell people to like pick the pan that feels right for you. <clears throat> like I'm a big guy, you know, for me, I like a big old saute pan. But there are some people who, like, your are tinier, like, get a smaller one. It doesn't matter. You just have to sear things a little, maybe a little bit more spaced out.
0: Love it. Well, that is fantastic. Listen, Chef Dave, Heidi, thank you so much for taking the time to to be with us. I really appreciate you describing all of the initiatives you're up to. It's important work. Thank you for doing it. And thanks for being on Chef Demoni. Of course. Thank you. Thanks, Chef, for taking the time to be on Chef Timoni and for all the work you're doing with Little John's. I'm really looking forward to staying in touch with your progress. As always, thank you for being here too. I really appreciate you spending some time with me here on the Chef Timoni podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a food-loving friend about it and please rate, review, and subscribe to Chef wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please feel free to get in touch with me directly. If you have a question or a comment for the show, Maybe you've got a guest suggestion or a topic idea. Do get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all at Chefdemoni. On LinkedIn, you can find me under Graham McLennan, and you can always send me an email. Those go to graham at chefdemoni.com. Okay, that is all for episode 49. Thank you, as always, for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you two Fridays from now, right here on Demoni.